2: The bus from Mundabra to Childers left on a Wednesday. Tia Poe had booked her seat and committed to her next challenge.
0: I was actually working in a um, citrus orchard in Mundabra and um, decided to go to Childers just on a whim. It was a bit of a random decision to travel over there by myself and um, I was quite determined that it was going to be at the palace. For some reason, i have not know why, but I I set my sights on going to the palace. She
2: was from New Zealand's South Island. She'd been working and traveling on both sides of Australia for a few months and had broad plans to make it back to Western Australia. Picking crops was easy money and eventually it would pay for her return across the Nullarbor. So she zeroed in on Childers and arrived late on the 21st of June. The next night, the palace was set alight.
0: Well, initially, I, I woke up, there was a, a smashing glass, so I could hear the smashing glass, and then, so I'm like, I'm thinking, is there a fight downstairs? You know, like, what, what's going on? And I heard glass smashing again. So, yeah, so you just kind of, like, you're stirred. And then something, I guess I put all the noises together because I just instantly, my... Heart rate went up, and I took a deep breath, and I, I, I yelled out, fire. That's fire. Because um, I remember Lita, she was in the bunk underneath me. She's like, what the hell is that noise? And um, once we realized, we, we just jumped out of bed. i <sighs> <Yeah. laughs> still, <laughs> still oh, geez, remembering that. It's quite intense.
2: It's still very raw, and justifiably so. Tia concedes she's easily triggered by Childers, its story and the entire experience of surviving the fire. The bad and the good, which these days mostly outweighs the negative. There is significant emotional baggage, which she's waded and navigated her way through as an evolving process for the past 20 years. It remains very much a work in progress. Thing is, Childers was only part of her ordeal.
0: Pretty much in the the middle of the building, and there were two doors, two entry points, one leading right into the centre of the the building, and the other door leading into a corridor. So it it felt like a bit of a rabbit warren up there, Um, quite thin corridors leading all over the place.
2: Was in room five. It's upstairs. She's rooming with Kubo from Japan and Lita Grindley from England, who first hears the commotion and jumps up to turn on the light. Now it stays on for just a brief moment, but long enough to get a sense of what they were confronting.
0: The the smoke was black and it was halfway down (laughs) the really high ceilings, and, and you know, my head was pretty much in this black smoke and um, the girl who was on the top bunk, she'd been breathing it in and uh, she she jumped down and um, I just remembered, I I just huddled against the wall because I I didn't understand why, why, why I was still there. I didn't understand why nobody had come to get me, yeah, so there was a bit of a panic
2: it was confusing. She was half asleep, recovering from her first and what would be only day picking on the same zucchini farm as Marnie and Lauren Morris. And no alarms. Surely, if there was a serious fire, alarms would be sounding, right? So there was a sense of reality not quite matching up with the illusion and expectation. Not
0: just you know a little bit of a little bit of smoke it was huge by that that stage and I couldn't understand why I was still in the building. I couldn't understand why I hadn't been you know warned, alerted yeah it was just really hard for my mind to comprehend what I was still doing in there and why I hadn't, I hadn't been rescued I guess you have a tendency to think you're going to get rescued so that, that was um, my initial thought was someone was going to save me. But you get out of that pretty quickly because you know no one's going to save you. And if you don't get out, you, you're toast. You, you're going to die.
2: It's a horrible realisation that she's on her own. Her fate is up to her. There's only one choice and there's no time to waste.
0: Well, later, um I just remember her yelling... Balcony, and she ran. Um, she, she opened the door, and she and she ran out the door. And I just, um, I guess, I you, something just kicks in. You're like, okay, you got to go. you got to go. And all of that um, stuff that you're taught when you're younger about fires, about get low, because I was just a panicking mess. Um, you know, get low. I just sort of kicked in, and I and I and I dropped to the ground. And my other roommate. I felt her clutch onto my leg, and we just started crawling. And I, I, I chose to go uh, left because I remember that was the direction of the balcony. Um, but, the, but by that stage, even low, my lungs were just hurting so much that I didn't know. I didn't. I yeah. I didn't know if I was going to make it at that point. Um, but I just kept on crawling.
2: It's too much. She's out of breath. There's no clean air to inhale. has now reached a point of panic, despair, and sheer helplessness.
0: I kept crawling and I felt someone, you know, on my leg. And I got, I got to a point, I don't, it couldn't have been long, but I just got to a point where I just got lost. I, I felt lost, I didn't know where I was. Everything was black, I couldn't breathe. And this, kind of i guess it was a calmness came over me like this is bullshit i'm gonna go back to sleep <laughs> it was kind of what i thought
2: sounds familiar right we heard that from sarah Marnie in episode one and remember kate morris said she was overcome with exhaustion and this desire to just doze off now tia as well it intrigued me, so I lined up a chat with Guy Marks. He's a researcher on lung disease and air pollution at Sydney University and a respiratory physician.
1: But the things that you burn in, that you inhale from the burning of the fire, are particles that are basically carbon particles from that are released by the combustion process and also carbon monoxide in the outdoor environments that carbon monoxide tends to spread around quite a bit and it's quite hard for the levels in the outdoor environment to get up very high but in an indoor environment where there's a fire the levels can become very high and many people who are affected by smoke inhalation from a house fire the thing that is most dangerous to them apart from the fire itself is is carbon monoxide poisoning. And that's
2: exactly what these people in that building would have encountered that night? That's that's correct, yeah. Survivors that I've spoken to have talked about this overwhelming sensation of wanting to just have a sleep while they're trying to escape. Is that is that
1: something you've heard before? Essentially, it causes you to become unconscious. Um, and so, coming unconscious, I guess, is a sense of falling asleep. It I, doesn't all that much surprise me, but what happens when you um, get carbon monoxide poisoning is you, you you lose consciousness. How long have they got? Once, once they start taking that in, how long do you think you've got? Essentially, carbon monoxide uh, poisoning uh, largely is the result of replacement of oxygen, and so people die of lack of oxygen and, and carbon monoxide poisoning. Is that seconds? Is it minutes? Uh, minutes, we're talking, yeah, minutes.
2: Minutes, if that. When you think of it that way, it's a a rather acute reflection on just how bad things must have been at that moment for everyone trying to escape the building. It's in those moments you just hope there's something extra you can find, an energy reserve deep down that pushes you to safety, or just a stroke of plain old good luck. And
0: I, I did kind of feel really, yeah, really sleepy at that point. And I, I remember this gash of heat coming out at me, and I turned my head, and I saw the balcony. I had w- I'd, I'd crawled to a point where, uh, down low, I could actually see the outside, and um, decided to oh, yeah, just went for it. Went for outside, um, got out onto the balcony. Oh, my lungs, they, they hurt so much. And I was still, uh, I think I was going into shock about then i remember turning back to the door and yelling fire because because i i I knew that i was in there i would i was it was so that you know i was trapped in there so i I knew other people were still in there i just had this feeling but I, i couldn't do anything i couldn't go back in and i couldn't really yell and i was really starting to go into shock at that stage and um i just looked around i looked downstairs and there were people sort of running around with their, with their bags, um, and someone yelled out, call the fire brigade. And I'm thinking, fuck, you know, like no one's called the fire brigade yet. Like what the fuck is going on? Um, yeah, that just, just freaked me out even more.
2: She got out via the balcony, helped down an escape ladder by fellow backpacker, Yoki Visser. She braved the elements, defied evil, and just beat the clock.
0: I mean, we walked across the road. Um, someone gave me a blanket. Um, I remember wrapping myself in that, and it wasn't long um, after I got off there. It just It just looked like it exploded. Um, there were flames shooting shooting off the balcony, and and then I realised that you know if anyone was in there, that they, they weren't getting out. They weren't they weren't getting out of there.
2: A matter of minutes, at the most. Yeah. Determined.
0: Yeah. It
2: who died and who lived?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was it was only minutes after after I got off that balcony that that it blew. It didn't take long. It was, it's kind of quite harrowing when you think how just that little bit of time matters. That little bit of time, if I if I didn't see the balcony or yeah, if I didn't see that fresh air, yeah, I would be, I would, yeah, I just would have passed out, I'd say.
2: That thought sitting inside your head's not, not healthy and, and not good for you. How have you managed to reconcile that?
0: You know, I just happened to be lucky, possibly guided. Just yeah, it's just just chance, really. I happened to get out, and the others didn't. Where I was, just, oh, there's a whole whole heap of things. There's a whole heap of things go go through your mind why why you're out and and they aren't. But I think we all know how close it was for everyone up there. That is really just a game of minutes.
2: Tia has remained in touch with Lita, although she too has done it tough since Childers, and that's understating it. She's never seen Kobu again.
3: The Japanese consulate came up on the morning of the fire and I think there were five Japanese staying there at the time. Language was another thing that was difficult when you're trying to help them, language difficulties. But they just came up from Brisbane, picked the five of them up and took them away. That was it. That was the last we saw of them. Just different ways of handling things, yeah. you know, from the different nationalities.
2: Among the 15 victims of the fire at Sushi Toyona who was one of the 10 guests who died in room seven.
3: He was working out on the Goodwood avocado farm. Okay. And his family came out and we took them out to the farm and drove them around and the owners of the farm showed him exactly where the tree was that he was working on and they've set up a, a little memorial plaque and everything to him out there at the farm, at the property itself.
2: One of the hardest things for the survivors was hitting the reset button, coming to terms with what had happened, taking stock and being able to function normally. Sure, for the first time in their lives, there were television cameras pointing a lens at any sign of movement and that was both unusual and claustrophobic at the same time. But it was more than that. The balance was all wrong. Their core sense of being it needed recalibrating. There was no easy fix. They found themselves planted firmly in either column A or column B, mentally traumatised by what they just endured and carrying a version of survivor's guilt, or overcompensating and pinging from one task to the next, doing nothing well, not completing tasks, but trying to cram in as much as possible because suddenly it had dawned on them that life is bloody short and it could be taken away when you least expect it in an instant. In the immediate aftermath of the fire, community volunteers let that process take its course and were there for anything and everything just to aid their recovery.
0: I just remember thinking, oh, I've got a headache and someone overheard that. And next thing, there's boxes of Panadol (laughs) everywhere. So, yeah, I took some of those and I remember someone saying, you know, do, do, would you like to come to my house and have a shower? And um, I'm like, oh, that would be great. But then you have this realisation I don't have any clothes change <laughs> into, I don't have any soap, I don't have a towel, I don't have a toothbrush. And honestly, within an hour, there's like a table full of all of that stuff right there, you know, and you would – you know, grab a towel and, and, a, and, a, and a change of clothes and, and shampoo and then toddle off to someone's house to shower in their house. And um, it's all very surreal.
2: And nothing was off limits or too difficult. Not many were privy to the scars the survivors were already carrying.
3: We had no accommodation for the kids. I mean, it was down to the the motel. We had no beds or anything. And they shushed people out of the motel everywhere to put the kids in there to give them somewhere they could
0: stay until we got them sorted out. Everyone was, like, kind of sleeping everywhere. Our doors were always open. <laughs> I think it was. Um, I remember one um, one guy, uh, G-man. He actually slept outside outside of the motel units on the first night because he couldn't he couldn't go inside a building. He couldn't sleep inside, so he he slept in a sleeping bag outside. So we we tend to um, you know have our doors open, and yeah, we're we're all pretty. Terrifying.
2: Even in the middle of winter, after a night like they'd endured, sleeping inside a confined hotel room was just too much to bear. June 23 didn't just claim lives, it changed so many others. Forever.
0: Yeah, I remember saying, "You okay?" And he's like, "Yeah, I, I can't, I, I can't go inside." I'm like, "Fair enough," because I don't think I slept that first night. I, I, I went. I remember going off for a walk in the dark, and I met there was a fireman um, standing station outside the the hostel. He came up to me. He's like, "You're right, love." And I'm like, "I can't sleep." And so he walked me over to the cultural centre, and we sat down, and we had a cup of tea. And um, I talked about, you know, my experience to him. And um, he shared some things with me. And it was, it was a really nice moment, really, just having that, that connection. Strangers just wanting to be there to listen yeah. and to be there for you. It didn't matter that it was 2 in the morning. There was someone around. There was always someone around in, in, in those following days. If you wanted to be at the cultural centre at 3 a.m., there was someone there making me a cup of tea. It was very communal, we just looked after each other, and uh, it was really nice to have that space while we were processing what, it, what had happened and, and, you know, thinking about the next stages of, of what we were going to do.
2: Tia stayed for a fortnight before joining a group of the survivors who headed north for a beach escape. They did that for a few weeks.
0: And then there was a point where I, I felt like I needed to get back to work and have some sort of normality. It was just something that I felt like I needed to do. So I, I, I tried. Actually, I tried in Bowen, and um, I kept crying. You know, I was that, I was that girl because I, I separated from everybody at that stage. I worked one day in Bowen. I got on a bus, and there were a bunch of people on the bus, and. I just I just started crying because <laughs> you know there, there it was for me it was like there's 15 people on this bus and that's a lot of people and I just I was the girl who was you know a strange girl who's always crying <laughs> so I had to get out of there I just felt really self conscious about that about people maybe talking about me or not knowing um, anything about me that lack of connection, that lack of being around people who knew.
2: Being on her own and dealing with what happened in Childers in solidarity was a personal choice but perhaps it wasn't the right one so soon. Still she pressed on and headed about an hour up the road to a town called Eyre.
0: With a, with a fresh start it was pretty similar. I, I cried a lot there I couldn't sleep at night I tried really hard to sort of get back to get back to normal, whatever that was. I was still still definitely very traumatised. But, um, you know, I got up and I went to work and then that went okay.
2: She'd been there three days and motivation was tough. The next day she decided against driving to work and jumped on the shuttle bus instead. After a long day picking eggplants, it was time to head home she was one of the last two people to get on the bus with two seats available she chose the one in a middle row the other guy a brit named jason walsh took the one at the
0: back and then just realizing no he's not slowing down he's not slowing down and there was a four-wheel drive um on the highway you know it's going highway speeds 100k and our van just went straight through the stop sign and I braced Because uh, I was watching it happen. Uh, I braced and it, it had us like a hundred K and um, I felt like I flew across the, the side of the van and impact uh, was, was pretty intense we spun flipped People
2: were flown out the back window. It was just carnage. One of those was Jason. There were 14 people on that bus. Two died, including Jason. After a checkup at the hospital, Tia was one of two people who walked away from the crash with nothing more than just a few bruises.
0: I was really traumatized. I, I had PTSD for a long time over that. I didn't want to drive. I was still having massive flashbacks after the fire. Um, I was thinking that everything was fire. The cat jump, jumping off the bench was fire. I was seeing it, like literally seeing uh, the smoke and hearing the flames. I uh, didn't sleep at night for, I don't know, maybe a year. Especially on Monday nights, um, I couldn't drive. I was, I was a nightmare if I had to be <laughs> driven by somebody. I mean, like it's a stop sign, you know, you've got to slow down. Just always hyper vigilant. So I carried that PTSD for a long time, but um, eventually, with with some help, I I managed to put that in its place.
2: Word got out and the media got wind of the story, it made the news, which Tia found not only difficult to comprehend but tough to reason with. But it led to a rather beautiful exchange, which kind of linked this entire crazy six-week ordeal of tragedy and extreme grief and the questions she was asking herself of her own mortality and her struggle to process it all.
0: It was the following day, so um... or, the, or even the day after. It's a bit of a blur. Uh, a Japanese girl came up to me and she said, "Tia, you know, were you and you in the fire?" And I said, "Yeah, um, I was." And she said, "Me too." <laughs> and um, I looked at her, and I did actually. I, I, it all came back to me because they had been whisked away quite fast uh, by the Japanese consulate, you know, taking care of them. So we we never really got to know each other and um, when she said me too we just um, we clung to each we just like full on clung to each other and started crying it was um, it was quite intense experience and for me it was god thank god you know because I'm so alone I felt so alone because I didn't have anyone from the fire with me I had people who had survived the accident with me but with both of those things compounded, I felt really isolated. It's was like, I, I don't think anyone, I didn't feel like anyone could really understand what I was going through.
2: It felt like things had gone full circle. She'd gone from the highs and fun of the itinerant working lifestyle and the constant development of friendships to the devastation of Childers. Her freedom had essentially disappeared. She'd become a prisoner inside her own head. She spent more than a month looking for ways to make sense of things, then chose to self-isolate, move on and compartmentalise the narrative of her life. Now there was a new shocking chapter playing out, but suddenly through mutual understanding and shared living, her worlds were colliding.
0: It took years to get to a point where I I could sleep well at night and, and function well. I had the help of a of a really good psychologist for uh, I think a year. I saw him quite regularly. helped me sort of piece things together. Helped me overcome you know some of the more traumatic things. I, I was living things over and over because the PTSD was quite quite extreme when I got home. I've managed to stay really well for for the last fifteen years. Actually. I mean, you never, you never recover from something like that. You know, it's always it's a part of you. But I've moved past that. Like, life isn't just about that. It doesn't define me anymore.
2: Hardly a day goes by when Tia doesn't think about Childers. She knows it's just become part of her being. It's how she deals with it, how she dictates the memories that continue to be self-managed. And you know what? It's worked.
0: The anniversary is always quite a sombre um, event for me. Um, For all of us, probably, we would start off like having 15 shots together or lighting 15 candles. There's always something. There's a significance, like a heaviness to this day, um, and it would carry all day, um, sometimes leading up to it. But it's just there's always a part of you that will just always stop and remember.
2: These days... The shots have stopped and candles are lit for a different reason.
0: It didn't actually cross my mind what was going on, which is kind of weird. Um, my, my firstborn was due on the 18th of June. It really hit me when, uh, when I gave birth to my firstborn on the 23rd of June. <laughs> and I'm holding him in the delivery room and, and realising the date. <laughs> you know, it was it was more significant than lighting fifteen candles. That's for sure. Yeah, to give birth to my my first first son on the anniversary, on the eleventh anniversary of the fire, was you know it was pretty amazing, pretty profound, really. Did, you, <laughs> yeah. when
2: did it occur to you? Like, went. Do you remember that?
0: Yeah, it, it occurred to me like when when I gave birth to him and he was on me. And then I just, I realized the day, I realized the date. Yeah, it was like, wow, <laughs> you know, circle of life. This is, this is profound to bring life into the world on, on that day. And that so much was taken away and that I just about lost my life on that day. And, and now I have my baby <laughs> on that day. And now, you know, it's changed for me. That day I I make birthday cakes and we throw parties, and it's about him. And uh, there's always a part of my day, though, and there probably always will be. There's a part of my day that's about them, and it can be around midnight when I light a candle and remember them. And then I light candles for my boy (laughs) on his birthday. Yeah. What's his Pretty
2: name? cool. <laughs> Luca, which means bringer of light. Yeah, bringer of light. Luca. Bringer of light. Certainly a new energy on a day that has for too long been shrouded in darkness. He'll turn nine on the anniversary of the fire. Happy birthday, Luca, and thank you to his mum, Tia, for sharing her story in this episode. It was written and produced by me, Paul Cochran, and I'd like to give a shout out to the man who has been doing all the amazing editing and providing all the incredible original sound design and composition you've been hearing on this series. He is a talent indeed, and he has worked tirelessly to pull this together. Zoltan Fetcher, it is so appreciated. My thanks to the Bundaberg Regional Council for their support of this podcast. They manage and maintain the memorial to the victims in Childers. It is a beautiful tribute. If you can, please do pop in for a visit and pay your respects. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, please tell your family and friends. Until next time, thank you for listening.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quins.